you can remain standing for uh, a brief prayer if you're able. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, once again another day where we get to gather as a congregation, as a community, uh, local to this church, to this building, Lord, week after week to to sing together, to pray together, to share life together, and to hear your word together. Lord, um, may we lean into the togetherness week after week and grow in uh, the understanding of the purpose of the church and, and the community here and how vital it is that we get to do this week after week. Um, Lord, we lift up to you the entirety of this service, and for Pastor James, who's not here, um, for all of the lives that have come and gathered this Sunday, Lord, and for uh, for the week to come, Lord, we pray um, that you teach us to hear your voice um, and to, uh, to really ponder what it means to follow Jesus day in and day out, Lord. Um, as we read... Uh, your story from the Gospel of John, Lord, I pray that you'll be with us, that it might be profitable for us to um, to learn more about w- what you would have to say to us in, in the first miracle in, in the Gospel of John. Lord, we love you and give you all the praise. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Good morning. I was going... Ooh. I was going to say you can be seated, but you guys already did that. Um, so I kind of jumped the gun and told you that we're going to be in the Gospel of John. So if you can turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, we're going to be reading 1 through 12 this morning. <clears throat> John 1, I mean John 2, 1 through 12. This is one of my favorite uh, passages in John. On the third day, there was a wedding in the Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some oil and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water what had become, that had become wine, He did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, then the inferior inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Good morning, everyone. So we are going to be in this passage for, uh, the, dur- for the duration. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verse about a party, so I have in my notes to ask you guys to say woohoo. I'm going to count to, okay, we got one, but I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. 
Nice. Okay, people had coffee this morning, I think. Um, so I think, I think it's safe to say that everybody knows celebration if you're a human, but I think Filipinos really do know celebration in a different way than a lot of my colleagues or friends do. Filipinos have fiestas. The name of this sermon, if you read the bulletin, was uh, The Real Jesus uh, Knew How to Fiesta. I changed it to Fiesta because you're Filipino. It was supposed to be party. Um, so today we're just going to, I'm going to be kicking off a sermon series which will be very broken. So anytime Pastor James is not here, I'm just going to do the next installment. So you have to wait until Pastor James is not here to get the, the rest of it. But um, uh, the sermon series is something I've been working on for a while, and I called it um, Imposter. Um, and the premise of Imposter is that we, all of us, have been steeped in church for a very long time. At least if you've been in the American church for a while, you've been steeped in church, and you have all kinds of traditions that have been repeated back to you. And uh, I'm convinced that we've been steeped in or given several images of Jesus that may or may not actually be very consistent with the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. And uh, you can think of this kind of Jesus, this quote-unquote imposter Jesus, as a, as a cartoon character of niceness and politeness or like a sort of Midwestern uh, nice Jesus, as I like to call him, uh, the Precious Moments Jesus. Do you guys remember Precious Moments Bibles? Those like little cute cartoon Bibles. So it's like that. And this is the Jesus who um, has like really cute truisms, and you turn the page and it says, um, you should share, and you should share, but right, it becomes a little too cute, too too simple. And it just sort of somehow, always those portraits of Jesus end up omitting the whole concept that Jesus was executed by the government, by instigated by the religious officials of the day. That's not a very polite Jesus because trying to get those two ideas to uh, fit together in our heads, you have to realize that Jesus wasn't executed or put to death for being too agreeable. So we don't pay much mind to how those things fit together. Often, usually that comes... Sunday after Sunday or whenever you gather for your small group and maybe it comes up. But uh, I don't think the Roman government typically killed people for being too agreeable with them, right? And, and neither did the temple officials often instigate the murder of one of their own, right? And so this is a, propos- uh, a process that happens quite a bit to historical figures, especially historical figures that make big splashes in history, um, these sort of historical radicals. The moment that their writings and their teachings begin to make it into the mainstream, uh, something happens to them. They become, they, they get shaped by the public consciousness. And so the prolific, if a little infamous, Dr. Cornell West talks about how this happens with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he calls it the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King. And it's this idea where we turn these complicated and complex historical figures with a history and like a, a whole life, and um, we kind of smooth them out over to kumbaya figures. And uh, why can't we get along cartoons or precious moments, Jesus, or, or you know, a Santa Claus who holds a Coke, you know? So um, these are nice and reassuring and comforting uh, expressions of this historical figure, but they also don't challenge or even come close to challenging the same status quo that Jesus challenged that got him put to death, 
right? It, like, it, they don't get at the, the kind of driving force of, that defined Jesus' ministry at all. So that Jesus, that Santa Claus, if it can, Santa Clausified Jesus, is an imposter. And that Jesus would never have been painted a criminal by the Roman government. And uh, that, that kind of Jesus would never have been a revolutionary dissident in the Roman Empire. And that, uh, that Jesus could never have been murdered by the Roman Empire. And that Jesus, frankly, I think would not be worthy of our consideration. He would have blended into the entirety of would-be upstart uh, messiahs of the day. And so this, is, this series or this uh, particular message in jo- uh, surrounding John 2 uh, marks the beginning of a journey where next time Pastor James is not in town, we'll look at another story that usually gets misread. And so we're going to re-examine all of these little pictures and portraits of Jesus and hopefully get a clearer picture of who this Jesus is underneath this cartoon Santa Claus Christianity. So pull up your Bibles and maybe take notes. Um, we're going to look into the text to maybe find the real Jesus here. Um, so th- what we do in my Thursday class, which if you've never been, it's not too late to go. We're wrapping up, but there's still a lot of really important things. So like people who, uh, who have been attending my Thursday class are sort of aware of how fine, fine, uh, fine comb, fine tooth comb we go through the text. And so we get really into the nitty-gritty of repetition and words and things like that, and hopefully uh, to unearth like a very clear picture of the text. So for those of you who have attended my Thursday class or have been watching online, then you know that this story looks very similar to one we read in Kings with oil, right? It's a prophet story. There's a lot of repetition there. And uh, so there's a lot of things going on. So we can really... We don't have time to do it here, but on Thursdays, that's what we do. That's my little plug for Thursday. Um, but what we're going to do this morning is uh, Thursday class light. We're going to look at the text specifically here. We'll look at the Gospel of John. And when we say Gospel, it's not the message of Scripture, but the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're looking at the fourth. Um, and the Gospels are four different accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus, This might be remedial for some of you, but hey, it's worth saying again. And we're looking at John who opens his gospel with the wedding at Cana. So back to the imposter Jesus, the hallmark card Jesus. One of the downsides of that Jesus, who has all of the cute little truisms um, and just be nice to one another, that Jesus ends up being quite a a judgy Jesus. He's not Typically, that Jesus in our mind is not here to have a good time. That's a sort of part of Jesus's character that we kind of set aside. Uh, he sort of looks down his nose at people and doesn't like it when you're having too much fun. I'm not saying that's what you guys think, but the, the outside perspective of Jesus is that he's a stickler for things, right? And uh, he's sort of like a middle school dance chaperone who always is like a body, body space between you two, right? Or something like that as they're dancing, right? That Jesus uh, can be a bummer, that Jesus can be a buzzkill, and that Jesus is really persistent outside of church spaces, right? And usually that's where, if you're going to talk to uh, a, an average college-age student who doesn't have a history with church and you try to talk to them about Jesus, this is the Jesus that comes up, 
right? Whether or not it's true, that's the Jesus that they're thinking of. Oh, I can't have fun anymore because of Jesus. But, you know, that's what comes up. And that Jesus is so prevalent in American culture that it gave rise to all sorts of moralisms, right? Just sort of truisms that started affecting entire societal life in America. So that sort of very nice and kind of uh, buzzkill Jesus gave rise to uh, the kind of moralism that led to the prohibition, right? In that, that the Jesus in our Bible would probably have been jailed in the prohibition, right? I think all of you uh, know that I grew up in the church, and so much of my life has been navigating moving through two worlds. The church, Sunday, Friday school when I was growing up, and Monday Bible study, right? That was my whole life, uh, hours and hours and hours of my week at church, practices and things like that. But I also had school, and I had friends outside of school, and so I also had to navigate what, what it was like being a very church kid and then also being out in the world where many of those kids were not church kids, right? Um, the, the church world is made up a huge portion of my life, but in reality it was pretty small and insular, right? It was the same group of people, many of you. I've seen your faces year after year after year. I'm not complaining about it, but I've seen your faces quite a bit, right? Um, whereas the not church world was expansive and huge in other countries and right it's huge it's hard to qualify the entire or quantify the entire world and what it looks like Um, and as a result of that expansiveness the not church world is full of possibility and excitement but also danger and all sorts of things that you don't want to get caught up in as an adult now this is a little bit of a share about myself as an adult now i am a pastor I study the Bible, uh, I study the biblical languages and write papers and things like that, um, but I also have another job. I have a few other jobs, and one of my other jobs is that I am a purveyor of, I'm a sommelier and a cavista, which I, I sell fine wine. Maybe you guys didn't know that, but that's my day job, so that's what pays bills and things like that, right? And so this has become a very particularly interesting space for me to occupy, because right? For obvious reasons, it's an interesting space to occupy. So for me, day to day throughout my week and on weekend nights, I uh, meet strangers daily all the time. Just people are coming in. Some people are traveling for a conference. Some people are here on business, things like that. And I meet strangers daily and I pour them bottles of wine. And it's my job to tell them the story of the vineyards, the story of how they were farmed, the flavor profile of these things, and why this bottle costs this in opposition to this. And um, I'm good at my job. And we, we'll chat table side or, or counter side or at restaurants and things like that. And sometimes these strangers become, they evolve a little bit and they become acquaintances or maybe even friends or regulars, right? And... Um, we would actually have lovely conversations, right? And then as soon as we become good enough friends to where I'll share something a little bit more personal about my life, um, I, it comes up that I move through multiple roles, right? I, I do this during the day, but Sunday mornings, Friday nights, and all throughout the week, I'm talking with people from church. And I'm also talking to people from other churches cause, and people who I went to school with and we study uh, the Bible together, and I'll run something by them. So they'll ask, oh, what else do you do? And then I say, oh, well, I pastor. And then you can see in their eyes the freezing moment that they had no idea 
that that was another thing that I did. And they do this mental rewind of, oh my goodness, what? I've known you for months. What have I told you? What, I, I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have shared that with you. Um, uh, I, oh man, like maybe I shouldn't have made that joke or maybe I made too many jokes. And immediately they think that I have been secretly judging them this whole time, right? And they, they, they would be like, oh, I wouldn't have let that particular joke slip or I wouldn't have, uh, and they feel really weird. You could see it in their eyes. It happens in a split second. And then they'll be, oh, I didn't know that. And I have to reassure them because I can see what just happened in their eyes, right? And so what I've realized is that there's, there's thing, so many things that people censor about themselves when they're around a pastor for one, but also like really, really like devout Christians, right? I don't think, uh, with good reason for, for sometimes, right? But the, that's what happens. The, the outside world censors a lot of themselves, and sometimes inadvertently, the Christian folks uh, in our midst also censor themselves because there's an expectation that's based on some sort of imposter Jesus, right? There's still true things that they're responding to, but there's also some things that can be let go of. And so, uh, it's almost as if this Jesus that they grew up with is a behavior police, or um, and in this, in, in particular, this kind of Jesus that's lodged in our head is not here for a good time ever, right? And so there's a little bit of a guilt associated. So there's a colleague of mine who, uh, this was a few years back now, but he was telling me that he was da- dating a girl. He was in a dating relationship with a girl. They were figuring out if they were going to go steady or something like that. And uh, so this this colleague of mine was a youth minister. He didn't go to seminary to, I mean, he didn't go to like a, an MA program to study history. He went straight into Christian ministries. And so he was working at a church for many years already. And uh, he, this girl he was dating was in grad school. She was studying uh, Old Testament, particularly the minor prophets. So she was a very brilliant, very smart person. And she was also um, uh, working at a church. And so she had gone to a party, a grad party, so it was a, like a, a, graduate's, a graduate school party, and she felt so guilty about being at this party that she called him from the party to confess that she went to a party and to break up with my friend. And then he called me immediately uh, saying, you know what, I think long term she really wasn't a winner anyway. So, um, and I told him, dude, that's so lame. She's really smart. She's cool. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're doing, right? And so, short-term and long-term, I know this man. He was the one who was not a winner, right? And I think about this interaction a lot because it's such a unique little experience where she went to a party, she had the wherewithal to call him, but she was experiencing a huge amount of guilt for having a good time here. And, uh, like, it's not like there was anything else going on. She just went to a party. She was with friends, and they were talking about, oh, man, that professor, wasn't it crazy how he did this paper like this? Something like that, you know? And so I still think that this is alive and well with a lot of people, that it's incompatible to go to a party and have a good time and be loose and enjoy yourself and then also follow Jesus. Um, this, so this idea of Jesus as this stern, stern rule keeper doesn't actually square with the Gospels. And actually, so this is a teaser for the next time we go through imposter Jesus, is we're going to be uh, diving deeper into assorted scriptures of Jesus' very tenuous relationship with rule and law. 
because it's all over Scripture that he has a pretty hard time with it, or like a pretty interesting relationship to it, I should say, right? Because Jesus broke a lot of them, and it, it confounded the people who watched it, right? And so we're going to get into that next time. Just for today, we're going to talk about why it is we have this Jesus that's so different, right? Why is it that the real Jesus has actually nothing to do with my friend's weird situation with his ex-girlfriend and that party, right? Because the real Jesus was actually throwing plenty of parties on his own. And in this particular story, he kept the party going, right? So our Jesus, the, or the real Jesus, the Jesus that's presented to us in the Gospels, is really, really different, right? Throughout his story, his followers were called drunks. They were accused of hanging out with sinners and pagans, unclean, which those words might not mean a lot to us right now, but for the people of the day, those are really coded words, right? It's, it's akin to saying, oh, you hang out with thugs, right? That, like, it's that, or, you, you, or criminals, or illegals, or something like that. It's coded language. It means a lot more than it lets on. And so Jesus was always hanging with folks whose society, uh, the Roman society, had set on the, on the uh, set aside and demonized intentionally. And Jesus wasn't concerned with looking very respectable oftentimes, right? Jesus was all about the people who were set aside. And so as Jesus was hanging with these folks who were considered the wrong crowd, that people you should not be hanging out with, what, what did he do? Well, he ate with them. He asked, hey, I'm going to come to your house for dinner. Well, of course, there was going to be wine there, right? And he drank with them in the low places, so much so that it caused people to, like, what is he doing there? Why is he hanging out over there, right? And he was called a drunk. The religious authorities that were accusing him were all very straight-laced religious authorities, right? They loved the rules. They actually enforced the rules. It was what defined them against the rest of culture, right? So uh, in, in this day, they used to weigh out a tenth of everything because money wasn't as... Uh, as prevalent as it is today, so people were uh, trading in kind, right? Because the minted coins are imperial, and you have to work for the imperial government to receive something like a denarii, which is why it's charged when Jesus says, whose face is on that coin? And a priest pulls out a, a denarii, right? He's working for Roman government. So people were trading in kind. So, for example, you would take 10% of what you had and give it back to the temple. So if you had a, a pile of spices, you'd cut 10%, you'd weigh it, and then that's your 10%. And so uh, it, in the, at the time, people would be really showy about these things. They would publicly show they're giving their 10%, right? And Jesus really wasn't here for that. Many parables uh, identify that, right? Um, but that was the deal. That was the law. You would give 10% of what you had. Um, uh, but Jesus would see something like that, the showy display, and call them hypocrites. Right? This is something you're doing for show, right? And that, that thing, that showy giving of 10%, that's actually the buzzkill. That's actually the thing that you're not supposed to do, right? Somebody who is performing holiness, somebody who's so concerned with appearances, that was the thing that Jesus was very much not uh, about, Right? Um, and that's, he's following the prophetic tradition because all the time in the prophets, right? Oh, what are these noisy sounds? I won't hear your worship, right? You can sacrifice all the bulls you want, but it's noisy to me, right? So we have this idea of imposter Jesus as a buzzkill, the middle school dance chaperone that's much more like the folks that used to get really mad at Jesus because he wasn't concerned with the performative holiness, 
just actual holiness, right? Jesus was concerned with actual holiness. And I'm not saying that Jesus didn't have a cutting edge because if you just listen to me right now, it could sound like I'm advocating for just laissez-faire, do whatever you want, have a good time, rules are nothing to be concerned with, right? I'm actually saying that Jesus' rules or Jesus' standards and what he believed was good in the world, his cutting edge was very different, right? And his holiness had simply a different edge to it. And also Jesus was the life of the party, right? And to prove that, we're going to dive into the wedding at Cana. So when these four Gospels tell the story of Jesus, they all have different perspectives, right? Each Gospel has a book, and they all collected different stories, and then they pile them up differently, and then they, they're trying to emphasize and contour Jesus differently, right? To show you how the, the kind of Jesus they wanted you to see. So some people get all bent out of shape about why the Gospels are so different. And they, what they try to do is make the facts line up exactly. So historically, there's a, something called a super gospel where somebody didn't like how all the stories were different. So they tried to cram all of the four gospels into one long gospel and they really tried to make it work. If you read it, it's, I mean, it's interesting to read. Um, if you, if you want to read it, I can show it to you. I have it upstairs uh, after the service. But it's more like if you were to talk to four of your friends and ask them to tell the story of, I don't know, the time you guys went up to Lake Tahoe or something like that. And they will recount the events for you. What happened? What all happened there? And chances are they're going to be very, they're going to emphasize very different things. One friend will really like, he just could not forget that joke you told on the way up. And then one friend will bring up the fact that you could not stop using the bathroom on the way up. Like you had to just keep stopping at rest stops, right? Every friend will emphasize different things, right? They're going to have different stories that emphasize different things. And they might get those stories in a different order, right? But you'll have a better picture of yourself from looking at all four stories and uh, talking to them than talking to just one, right? And so that's kind of what like the Gospels are like. So different Gospels have different priorities. Um, Luke is one of my favorite Gospels. It goes into Luke and Acts. Um, uh, and I really like the Gospel of Luke um, because the gospel, is, the gospel of Luke is full about really explicit references to how the Spirit is moving and what the Spirit is concerned with and what it's not concerned with. And Luke's gospel is full of great reversals, right? All these stories of where there's one thing and then you get another, right? You, it changes the way that you pers- uh, expected things. The first shall be last, the last shall be first, the mighty shall fall from their thrones. It's all very dramatic. Luke is a very dramatic gospel in that sense. Um, And so, for instance, in Luke's gospel, the first story is about Jesus going to his hometown and preaching a sermon that is so disruptive to the hometown that everybody gets so mad at him and they, they try to throw him off of a cliff. Like, it's a very dramatic story, and you... You have to imagine what kind of sermon has to be told for the entire group to want to throw you off of the cliff, right? And certainly to your death, right? We have to really understand what kind of sermon that might be, right? John is so much more concerned about who, that the Jesus who is holy, the Jesus who is God. John is concerned that you understand that this man in front of you that he's showing you in the text is divine, this is God here on earth, that Jesus is divine and powerful. So you would think that John, 
who is concerned with holiness and, and, and the divinity of Jesus would be the least likely of the four to tell you about how Jesus got everybody really drunk with wine. Right? If you were concerned with holiness, maybe in our mind, that's not the first story you'd tell. Right? How many days was the wedding feast? Seven. Right? <laughs> so, so Jesus was really keeping the party going. And uh, that's the first story that John tells. The first major story, at least. Right? The beginning of Jesus' ministry in John starts with a wedding feast at Cana. Right? John is concerned with you understanding, like in Paul's terms, the breadth, the height, the depth, the width of God's love and power and holiness. Right? And something different. Right? So the lavishness of God's holiness, because holiness, uh, uh, it means something different maybe in our minds, right? But this portrait in John is a really interesting picture of God's holiness and what it looks like for God, for what, a picture of grace upon grace, as John will say later, right? So in John, the first miracle is a seven-day party. Okay, that's the setup, Right? And the first party would have been a complete failure or a bummer unless Jesus did something, right? He made a miraculous wine run, right? So he went out and got some more wine for the shop. So this is the, the setting is a wedding, and weddings in ancient Palestine lasted a week, right? Weddings were a part of cultural life. They were wild and lavish if you could afford it, right? Weddings were also expensive, right? They were a part of human life, and it was a very human thing that Jesus was showing up to do. He was invited, him and his mom, and he brought friends, right? He was invited, and he brought friends, right? So he was invited with his mom, and he brought friends. He brought disciples. So like, he brought people that were not invited. So, uh, and it was a celebration of relationship. Weddings are that. They're a celebration of relationship, of intimacy, of coming together, of connection. And so on the third day, on the third day, which if you attend my class, you know that this is not, this is intentional, right? If you attend the Thursday class, um, this is a very particular detail that John is including He's being very fancy, and he's also being very holy by including this detail. We'll get back to that later. But remember for now that on the third day, they ran out of wine, okay? On the third day, there's no wine. And that's a pretty big party foul. It's the third day of an always seven-day wedding. It's not that they, like, oh, man, the other four days really snuck up on us. I, I don't know what happened. Right? So they ran out of wine. There wasn't enough. Either the party drank too quick or there just simply wasn't enough. Right? If you are throwing a wedding, you're supposed to have wine and food that was flowing through the entire week-long celebration. People would travel to the wedding. Right? So this was an expectation. And if it stopped halfway through, it was a bummer. And there's something to be said, I think, about like the socioeconomic status of maybe the family who was having the wedding. Right? Perhaps the family was not well off, and so they couldn't afford seven days' worth of wedding, and they were hoping that what little they had would stretch. Right, And so an added layer of social protection from social shame at play here, perhaps. But at least for this reading, the point is there's no more wine on the third day. It's four more days, right? Seven-day party. So Mary and Jesus have this exchange about it, and the exchange is very dense and rich. It has a structure on its own. I won't go into all of it right now, except to say that uh, 
If anybody was worried that Jesus calls his uh, mother woman, it's a term of endearment, so he's not actually being rude. And there's this little beautiful exchange between Jesus and Mary as she offers him an invitation to come into his power, right? But it culminates in Jesus turning six cisterns, stone jars that hold 30 gallons of water into wine, right? So 30 gallons of water, and there's six of them. That's 180 gallons so, uh, of wine. And so maybe you've heard this story told, but maybe you've never heard this story told by a wine professional. So you get a special detail here. So you have 30 gallons of water per jar, 180 gallons of wine potentially, right? This is 1,000 bottles of wine. That's 1,000 bottles of wine. That is a total of 83 cases of wine, give or take, right? 12 bottles uh, per case. So 83 cases of wine could fill a shipping truck, okay? It's a lot of wine. It's actually too much wine for people to drink, right? It's, and um, so when somebody comes to taste it, they discover that it's not just wine, it's good wine. And it's not just good wine, it's the best wine. And protocol here, uh, the protocol here as scripture notes, like John is doing all these little asides, like it's not typical for this to happen, but what he did, what the steward did is, uh, what the, the steward and the bridegroom say is, what, what just happened here is insane because everybody serves the cheap wine first because nobody can tell good from bad uh, once they're drunk, Right? And so you can get people drunk on the first day, and then the six days, it doesn't matter what you serve, right? Um, so why would you wait until now, is what the bridegroom says, to serve this, right? To bust out the really good stuff, right? This is not really related to the passage here, but just for like visualization of what it would look like in a modern day. A cheap case of wine is about $150, like a cheap case of wine for it's good, it's not bad wine, it's just cheap, right? Um, a, a case, one case of finer wine, but not the best wine, at my store, like just fine wine, um, 1200 per case, okay? This has nothing to do with the story, but just to visualize, 83 cases of the $150 wine would be near on $100,000, near, right? Um, 83 cases of the fine, but not, um, not finest wine, is near $100,000 for the whole thing, right? And so Jesus really overdid it. That's the point. The, the, whole, the whole driving force of the drama is that Jesus overdid it. He didn't need six cisterns. He did six cisterns, though. And it wasn't just good wine. It was the best wine, right? And so that's theologically significant, that what is this supposed to mean? The author of the story, the author of John, filled this story with language of abundance, which we know from the Thursday class that it's all over the place. Abundance is sort of the point of the Gospels, right? I mean, at least of John. And so he fills it with a language of abundance of grace, right? And so what grace looks like, it's a miracle of abundance. One commentator, Caroline Lewis, says that this miracle is a sign of abundance that really manifests what grace upon grace tastes like and what it looks like, right? It tastes like the best wine, more than you or anybody else could possibly want or need or consume, right? And, or drink. And it comes when you least expect it, right? But it should also be noted that the gospel, John, calls this a sign and not a miracle, right? Not that it's not a miracle, but they make a point to call it a sign, right? It, 
uh, and signs are like that. They're signs. They direct you to something, right? And so it's supposed to point to the character of Jesus, and therefore, if you buy into John's thesis statement, also God, right? And so it's a miraculous thing that happened, but the word sign signals, which is a pun intended, it's supposed to signal something to us. It's not just for show. It's evidence of who God is. That third day that I mentioned at the beginning, it's pointing towards what? The end of the story, which means that at the beginning, from the jump, that John includes a giant book-wide chiasm, right? Day three, third day, third day. They're similar, but also different, right? So what this is called if you, if you are part of my class, then you're clued into symmetry immediately. Once you heard third day and you know that the story ends with third day, then this is a specific kind of symmetry. It's parallelism and even more specifically, it's chiasm. It's where the outside portions match with the outside portions, then the inside portions match with the inside, the inside, inside, and then there's a center, right? And so um, this entire book is designed to signal things and excite theological truths, right? It's pointing towards the cross, and, but not just the cross, because the cross is the first day, right? What does it point to, ultimately? The resurrection, right? It's the resurrection, the third day, the sign of God, right? The thing that's like undisputable proof now, right? This is God. And that means that the new wine in the first is foretelling what? The resurrection, the sign of God. And that means that when the old wine has run out, there will be what? Much, much, much more. And it's good, right? And not just good, it is the best. There will be a miracle that God will come, and that's what grace upon grace will look like, right? But in our Thursday class, we know that this symmetry like this informs not only the, the, the latter portion, but also the what? The former, right? So, the reality of the resurrection on the third day actually sheds light on what? The wine coming on the third day, right? It works in reverse too. It isn't just that the wine at the wedding is like the resurrection of Jesus. It's telling us that the resurrection of Jesus after death at the hands of the Roman Empire and the Jewish authorities is like busting out new and beautiful, insanely good wine and too much of it, right? And halfway through a party you thought was over, right? And uh, to be honest, that's how the world feels like sometimes, right? Like, like it's, we're, you know, we're halfway through whatever this is. And uh, Jesus' resurrection is more like abundance, is more abundance than can even be consumed by any one party, right? And so, uh, and it comes, it's, so it's, it, uh, John repeats this throughout his gospel, the theme of abundance, right? Life abundant, eternal life, right? More than you can thirst quench, you'll never be thirsty, right? And so uh, this is a theme for John. It comes oftentimes when we least expect it and informs we least expect it to come in and so uh, that our thirst will be quenched. John calls Jesus what? Uh, the bread of life, right? Calls him the bread of life. And Jesus says, Whoever comes to me will not be hungry. But there's a distinction here as well because bread is nourishment and sustenance. But wine is not sustenance, right? 
Wine is about joy and prosperity and abundance and frivolity and leisure time, right? It's all of those things that, uh, that uh, sort of the, the prohibition era Jesus in churches would not have understood, right? Uh, this is about bread and roses. Does anybody know where the phrase bread and roses comes from? So uh, there's a there's a poem and a song. It's a poem that was turned into a song called "Bread and Roses," and it comes from actually uh, labor organizing. But it comes from women in the movement in the labor movement at the turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century. And it comes from women who were uh, in the textile industry who were striking for better working conditions in the factories. Um, but they said, "We don't just want to survive; we want to thrive. We want." Not just a living wage, but joy and beauty as well. And so there's a poem that ended up becoming a song and became a rallying cry of textile labor workers. And it says, hearts starve, hearts starve just as well as bodies. So give us red, give us bread, but also give us roses. And so Jesus is here for more than bread. He's here also for wine. Right for celebration, for prosperity and abundance. Jesus is absolutely here to heal the sick and feed the hungry because bodies are hungry, right? But also there are hungry hearts yearning for yet more, right? And doesn't, don't people's hearts yearn for more? So how can we receive this wine of abundance? How do we take this in? How do we incorporate this Jesus into our daily lives? And Jesus will say in the Gospels, I don't think, like, the world as it is is not ready for what I'm coming to bring, right? How can, how can anybody take it in if you don't get it, right? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, no one puts new wine into old skins. Otherwise, the wine bursts, and the skin and the wine is lost, right? And so are the skins, right? But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins, Right? And if you don't know anything about wine and wine containment, that's fine. I just happen to be, this is repetition, a wine professional, right? And apparently so was Jesus. He knew what to do with the wine. And uh, Jesus is saying, I have brought you something that you are not capable yet of receiving. Because the structures, your systems, your imaginations are far too small to, to, to receive everything I have to give, Right? They're too worn out. And the abundance of Jesus looks so fundamentally different from the scarcity of this world and the way that we imagine this world that it cannot be held by the current structures of things or by our current imaginations of, of what God is like, right? And so we need new containers. We need new structures. We need to constantly building places in both our hearts and in our communities that this Jesus and every, the muchness he wants to bring can rest, right? Jesus is here for these new imaginations, this abundance. He's here to provide it. And so in that sense, we need new communities to do this. And in a perfect world, a church like this would be that new community, right? But I'm always worried that the church, not just this church, but the church as we know it, is still stuck partially in old wineskins, so part of, like, the, the, the real running ground for me in this passage is, is about here. It's about saying the church, and by this I mean the church that is to come, the church that Jesus is coming to, that has come to bring, the kingdom of God, cannot be contained by a building like this. Absolutely not. It cannot be contained in the systems of old, that we need to dream different ways of being church, Right? 
Um, like Paul prays in Ephesians. There's this beautiful prayer in Ephesians where Paul says, may we comprehend just how immeasurably huge the love of God is, that we might comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of love, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? Why does Paul pray that? So he says, so we might be filled with fullness of God. And then Paul closes the prayer convinced that if we could continue to just meet the surprise of God daily, then we'd be able to to abundantly do more than we can even at present ask or think or imagine. That's pretty abundant language, right? This fantastically full language of, of Paul here is overflowing with hope for future. So this means, I think, we dream of different ways of receiving that wine and that abundance. And it's not monetary, right? I'm not talking about that kind of abundance. I'm talking about real life, right? And so our student ministry here at United Baptist Church is called, what is it? Where's the folks? Yeah, okay. Ali says ZML, right? Um, What does ZML stand for? Zoe means life. And so Zoe is is one of the Greek words for life. It means to be alive, not dead, but among the living, right? And so we build new wineskins, even while living in our old and faithful places. We still imagine new ways of doing church, new ways of receiving and offering out the love of God. And one of the reasons I call, like oftentimes ZML will meet here, right? We call this room, or at least I call this room, the building where ZML meets, right? This room is not ZML, Neither is our little room up there. That's not ZML either, right? This is simply where we meet. Because I know that the church is not this building, actually. This is the building where the church meets, right? And neither can the church be contained by this building. The church is not only the church when they're in this building on a Sunday. The church is the church wherever it is, wherever two or more gather, right? And so God pours us out. Right? That's the picture in Ezekiel that the, the temple is overflowing with a, li- a river of living water that's bringing life in dead places that could even change the Dead Sea into fresh water and have uh, uh, trees and fish growing around it. Right? So God pours us like wine into the community, into the world. Right? And the body, the church, the body of Christ cannot be contained by any one building or structure or denomination. So even now the people of God are constantly meeting one another at work, in cemeteries, in funeral homes, at the grocery, on the beach, for coffee, over dinner, at bars, and in quiet hours of contemplating with our friends and family. Um, It happens in people's homes. It pours out during late-night phone calls in crisis and also early morning sunrise hikes for those of you who partake in early morning sunrise hikes. But it also happens at the end of your shift when you're finding yourself sitting with your coworker because the day was so bad and you've had a tough day and they tell you that they're surprised that you're a pastor because they left church when they were 15 because some really nasty business went down at their church when they were younger and ever since pastors have been scary for them and they don't want to go to church even though they really really miss the community and the life that happens in church right because it's scary for them to think about the traumatic experiences that people who held the title pastor have done they miss the community but they don't know how to relate to it So what they have to do and what we have to do is rework our categories because when you live like Jesus lived, then we're consistently confounding the people who watch us, right? 
to look like fools for Christ. And we pour out like new wine into the world of God's abundance. And this wine, this wine that's poured out, it's plentiful and it's beautiful and it's holy and it's beyond our wildest imaginations. And Jesus gave us another image of wine on the night he was betrayed, right? And arrested. And in that story, his blood was poured out for all because new wine and abundance and prosperity look different than we could have imagined, right? And it comes with love and suffering and real sacrifice, and Jesus models that, right? But it comes for us, for the forgiveness that all day we all might be free, that we could all turn our mourning into dancing, that we could toast with the wine that is the blood and the sweat and the tears and the creativity and the joy and the beauty and the abundance of our God revealed to us in Jesus, So much so that we can say that our life has bread for nourishment, but also roses for joy. And that Jesus, that Jesus really knows how to throw a party. Will you pray with me, uh, just thanking the God of abundance for what he's done on the cross? Heavenly Father, God of abundance, God of joy, and celebration, God who shows up with more than we need at the moments we least expect it. God, would you pour out this abundance in our lives, pour out the new wine for us. God, our bodies are hungry and broken. Our world experiences uh, pain and suffering. God, we long for healing. We long for the basics. We learn to be free, but also, God, we yearn to be more than just free but to be joyful. Lord, we, learn, we yearn for abundance and we yearn for more than we can imagine at present. Lord, we thank you for being a God who promises us both bread and roses. Lord, come heal us and come celebrate with us. In your name we pray, amen.